I'm sure it won't be news to many of you listening that we are living in an increasingly post-Christian and secularized society, a divided and fractured society, a society where uh, the majority of Americans have rejected traditional Christian beliefs and values, and Christians who hold those beliefs may find themselves facing increasing pressure and hostility and are needing to figure out the best way to conduct themselves in the public square. It was something that Leslie Newbigin faced when he returned to a secularized Britain after decades overseas. Newbigin had been ordained by the Church of Scotland in 1936 and was sent by them to serve in India where he became the Bishop of the Church of South India and went on to become one of the most respected theologians and missiologists of the 20th century. When he returned home in 1974, he found a very different Britain to the one he'd left. And he spent his remaining years challenging the church to become missionaries in their own post-Christian culture. But he said one of the most important factors in getting people to believe the truth of the gospel is by a congregation that is living it out. In his book, uh, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, he wrote this. How is it possible for the church truly to represent the reign of God in the world in the way that Jesus did? I confess that I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. As he said elsewhere, Jesus didn't write a book, he formed a community. God intends for his church to be a living demonstration of why the gospel is good news. And one of the ways that we can demonstrate that today in our own society is by our unity in diversity. In a society that's so divided, you know, where there's so much tribalism and sectarianism, so much distrust, the church should stand out as a beacon of hope, demonstrating the beauty and the power of the gospel through our shared lives and through our love for one another in spite of our differences. The very thing that Jesus prayed for his church before going to the cross. He prayed that we might be one so that the world might believe. But that's not going to happen by just us trying harder to get along, is it? It will only happen as we understand the incredible story that we're in and as we acknowledge our new identity in Christ and the new family that we're a part of. And that's what the Apostle Paul was writing to remind the Galatians about when their own churches were being threatened by sectarianism. So with all that in mind, let's now turn to Galatians chapter 3 as we continue our series of messages from this important letter. I'll break it down and comment on each section, but it all leads to Christ. And first of all, Paul summarizes 2,000 years of Old Testament history from Abraham through Moses to Christ. And he asks the question, you know, what was the point of the law? Why did God give Moses the law and why is it now obsolete? contrary to what some false teachers were telling the Galatians. And we shall see that in many ways, the law is a bit like Mary Poppins. But we'll get there in a minute. Let's start by reading from verse 15. And if you remember last week, we ended in verse 14, where Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham might come to us so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. And then he says this, 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, like a last will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now what's Paul saying there? He's saying that God made a covenant with Abraham, which we read about in Genesis 12 and 15, where God says, I will bless you. And then he promised that all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham and his offspring, that they would inherit the earth. This was God putting into effect his plan of redemption for a fallen world and making it known that his chosen instrument for blessing was to be Abraham and his offspring. Now, of course, when we think of Abraham's offspring, we think of Isaac, Jacob and the nation of Israel. But Paul makes it clear that the offspring was actually Christ, who, of course, was a son of Israel. And so the implication is that it's through Christ that the nations will be blessed, that in him there would be a new multinational family of God who would inherit the new heavens and new earth. But then what about the covenant that God made with Moses 430 years later when he gave his people the Torah, the law, along with various blessings or curses they could expect to receive depending on whether they had kept the law or not? Surely we need to keep the requirements of the law as well if we're going to receive God's blessing, right? That's what the Galatians were being told. But Paul makes it clear that just like, you know, when we make a human covenant, like when we make a last will, no one can add to it or ignore it. It's binding. And so in the same way, God's promise to Abraham was binding. God's blessing was based on his promise not our performance. Let me say that again. God's blessing was based on his promise, not our performance. That's what Paul is saying. Because after all, if we could receive God's blessing by keeping the law, it wouldn't be a promise, would it? So that then raises the question, well, what was the point of the law then? Now stay with me, because that's what Paul addresses next. So let's just read on now. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So what's Paul saying here? And this is where Mary Poppins comes in. Paul is saying that the law was a necessary part of our story. It played a very important role between God giving the promise to Abraham and it being fulfilled in Christ. 
The law, he says, was needed because of transgressions. You see, even though Abraham's family had been chosen to carry God's promise of blessing, they were infected by the same sin as all the other human families. And so something had to be put into place to stop Israel from totally self-destructing before Christ could come. I like the way the theologian N.T. Wright puts it. He says, Paul's quite clear the whole human race is sinful and under God's judgment and that God had promised a remedy. However, he says, the people who carried the solution were themselves part of the problem. The doctors were themselves infected with a disease. What then had to happen? Answer, the doctors themselves needed to be put in quarantine until the medicine they were carrying could be applied. The medicine, of course, being Christ. The law was a kind of temporary quarantine for this purpose, he says. It's why Israel were commanded to remain separate from the other nations. It's why uh, laws were given to keep Jews and Gentiles apart. They were not allowed to eat at the same table, even though God's promise was ultimately to bless all these other nations. But you see, the law was a temporary measure for a specific period of time to preserve God's people until that promise could be fulfilled through faith in Christ. And until faith came, we were all held captive under the law, says Paul. You know, we were all uh, subject to it and condemned by it. And then he changes the analogy. He says, uh, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And the word he uses for guardian describes a particular servant in ancient times whose job it was to take care of the children in their master's household. They had to get the children to school, uh, watch over them and discipline them if needed. A modern equivalent might be a nanny or a governess, a bit like Mary Poppins. Just not as much fun. There's no spoonful of sugar to make this medicine go down. Uh, but the law did serve a good purpose. Like Mary Poppins, the law was put in charge to make sure we didn't stray too far, to kind of keep us in check. So can you see, Paul says the purpose of the law was to hold us captive until Christ should set us free. It was to put us under a guardian until we could come of age as sons and heirs through faith in Christ. And so the point is, if we try and keep all the rules of the law once we've put our faith in Christ, it's like putting ourselves back in prison or saying you need a nanny when you're a grown-up. It's what these false teachers were trying to get the Galatians to do. But Paul was insisting that the law had accomplished its purpose, its job was done. Now Christ had come, it was a whole new age. And in this new age, Jews and Gentiles no longer needed to remain separate. God's promise that the nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring could now be fulfilled. It was always God's intention to have a single multinational family where it doesn't matter what your ethnicity, gender or social standing is, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a seat at the table as full and complete members of God's family with equal standing, heirs of the new heavens and new earth. As Paul then says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And please don't be offended if you're a female. I know some translations change it to say children of God, but that misses the point Paul is making. Uh, what he's saying is actually revolutionary. 
because in most ancient cultures it was only the son who was the legal heir. Daughters didn't have the same rights and privileges, but in Christ we are all sons. In other words, we're all heirs through faith in him. Which leads to our last section of scripture where Paul makes it clear that we're all one in Christ. And this is really where the whole chapter has been heading. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are all one in Christ Jesus, he says. Last week I watched uh, Kenneth Branagh's film Belfast, which has been nominated for seven Oscars and has been, uh, was based on Branagh's own childhood growing up in Belfast in the late 1960s. I thought it might be a bit depressing because it's set during the hostilities and the violence of the Northern Ireland conflict, which I can remember well. But the film is centered on a particular family and it's actually, it's very heartwarming. And what particularly struck me was that before the Troubles, uh, there were Protestants and Catholics living on the same street and it was like one big family. People were in and out of each other's homes, didn't have to worry about where your kids were, where they were playing out in the streets because everyone in the neighborhood knew them and they would be watching out for them. The community was like a big family. But then the troubles flared up. And the thing is, the issues were primarily political and nationalistic based on some historic events. And yet so often it was referred to as Protestant and Catholic. And while it certainly fostered some bad feeling, it really wasn't a religious conflict. And yet walls were built to keep the two communities apart. And it made me think about the church today and the various influences that can threaten to divide us. You know, God's intention was that through Christ, he might have one big family, which is why when you look at the history of the church, it is tragic to see how divided and fractured it has become in thousands of ways. Sometimes it's been along ethnic, cultural, and social lines, but more often it's been where people have added things to our faith in Christ as being necessary to gain acceptance into his family. Even today in this country, you know, Christians are dividing over secondary issues, often fueled by other agendas. You know, sadly, sectarianism is alive and well. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would have made of it. I think he would be horrified. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. One family in Christ Jesus. And how do we get in? It's through faith in Christ alone. That's what Paul's been saying throughout the chapter. So you might be surprised that Paul mentions baptism here. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Biblically speaking, baptism and faith, they go hand in hand. You know, it's the, the doorway that we pass through into membership in God's family. Baptism into Christ assumes that faith is present. Baptism is the outward visible sign of our inward faith. It's where we say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or as Paul says here, is where we put on Christ. It's like we're clothed in him. In other words, our identity is in him now. 
Our identity is not in our upbringing or social class. It's not in our nationality or ethnicity. It's not in our sexuality or gender. It's found in Christ. If we're clothed in him, then God sees us like he sees his son. Right? We're clothed in his righteousness. And so we're totally accepted by God. He delights in us. He delights in you, just like he delights in his son, Jesus. It means there's no favorites in his family. No special privileges or blessings given to certain nations or ethnic groups. No subservient classes or genders. All are equal because all are one in Christ. Listen, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ has radical social implications. Because all the barriers that can separate people come down in Christ. And Paul mentions three of them here. First, there's the cultural barrier. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Because Christ had come, God's promise of blessing, all the different families of the earth could now be fulfilled. In Christ, the ancient separation between Jew and Gentile was no longer necessary. Both Jew and Gentile stood on level ground before the cross, equal in their need of a savior, equal in their inability to earn God's favor, equal in being able to receive God's blessing through faith in Christ alone and become members of his new multinational family who will one day inherit the earth. It means that cultural and racial divisions have no place in the church. No culture is superior to another and as members of the same family our love and appreciation for one another must cross racial and cultural lines. Then there's the class barrier, neither slave nor free, says Paul. You know, in some parts of the world, there are still class systems where people of one class or caste don't associate or eat with another. That's not how it is in God's family. It doesn't matter what circumstances we're born into or what education or wealth or status we have. None of these things should divide us because we recognize one another as equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? No one should feel inferior in God's family. And it's the same for the gender barrier, neither male nor female, which is one of the biggest barriers in Paul's day. You know, women were considered inferior to men and had very few rights. And yet what Paul was saying here was revolutionary, because in Christ, men and women were to be seen as equals. In terms of status and standing, equal in value before God and one another, we are one in Christ. That doesn't mean, of course, that our distinctives are erased. God created us male and female, and together we reflect his image, right? Male and female are different, but that just means we complement one another. We need one another, and so we work together to fulfill God's purposes. And it's why we can't take this verse out of context and say that, you know, well, gender doesn't matter anymore or that there can be a blurring of the genders. Paul's very clear on that elsewhere. Uh, but when he says there's neither male or female, he's saying that our gender is irrelevant for our status in Christ. And it's the same for different ethnicities. You know, Paul's not saying that the, the wonderful distinctives that we find in different uh, cultures and languages are somehow obliterated in Christ. That's certainly not what we see depicted in the new heavens and new earth. The fact is, we are not all identical, nor are we interchangeable, but we are all one.
That's what Paul is emphasizing here. As I said, the gospel, when lived out, has radical social implications. But that's the challenge, isn't it? Are we truly living it out? Can people see that we're clothed with Christ or are other things clouding their view? You know, things that get added to our garment that starts to obscure Christ and threatens to separate us. That could be legalism or tradition like Paul was encountering in Galatia. Or it could be nationalistic, political or cultural influences. Or it could just be self-centeredness, self-interest. You know, when we should be saying with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Can people see Christ in us? Because one of the primary ways that people will come to see him and believe in him is when they see his family. As Leslie Newbigin said, one of the most important factors in getting people to believe the truth of the gospel is by seeing a congregation that is living it out. When they see us reaching across social, cultural and ethnic boundaries in our love for one another, demonstrating through our community the power of the gospel to unite diverse people, when people can see that we are clothed in Christ, one in Christ, then it's a sign to the world that Jesus is Lord which is why he prayed for us, that we might be one. But we've all got a part to play in that, don't we? In our attitudes and actions, in uh, denying self and putting others first, uh, where it's not about me, it's about us as the family of God. Listen, I'm not getting any younger, but I still have a vision for our church to impact this region by being the kind of community that Paul is describing. A church where the different generations are included and valued. You know, young and old, married and singles, one big family together. A church where men and women honour one another and serve alongside one another. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, all using their gifts to build up the church and to reach the world. A church where people of different ethnicities and cultures enjoy one another, learn from one another, eat with one another. Where people of different social backgrounds worship together, grow together, share life together. Will you join me in making that a reality? Listen, we don't need a nanny. We just need Jesus. Let's clothe ourselves in him. God bless you.